Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, everyone. Let's take out our Bibles today and uh, turn to the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm uh, 17 this morning. If you turn there in your Bibles, Psalm 17. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to double down on that life group announcement. If you're new to the church, this is the way our church is uh, organized together. It's impossible to know everybody in the large group gathering, but it's in these small groups so we get to know other believers. And as Christina said, to become not just hearers of the word, but uh, doers also. Uh, There's something about revisiting the text from Sunday morning and the teaching from Sunday morning with other Christians, to hear what other people were thinking, how they were applying the word to their lives, to just thinking about it again. You know how life is. You know, we can hear a sermon, we can wrestle with a text, and we can walk out saying to ourselves, man, God really spoke to me. And then 30 minutes later, we're deep into lunch and life hits, and we've forgotten what we just received or consumed. So this is a great opportunity for us to double back and pause and as a center point of these groups to discuss uh, the word and to discuss the teaching and how it applies uh, into our uh, lives. So I'd encourage you to get into a group starting uh, this uh, fall. And if you're new to the church, like I said, uh, we do these groups in the fall for three months, and then we do them again in the winter and spring for another three months. So this is your big on-ramp coming up here uh, to sign up for this next quarter. So I hope you get plugged in. All right, uh, last week we covered uh, Psalm 15 together as a church. We're going through the Psalms. I think I'm going to try to get us through Psalm 21 before we move on to our next book of the Bible. Last week we covered Psalm 15, uh, but I asked you today to turn to Psalm 16. And the reason I'm doing that is because we're skipping Psalm 16. And the reason we're skipping Psalm 16 is because I want to get you through the whole Psalter. And last fall, Pastor Matt, on a random Sunday in October, uh, he was asked to speak and he taught Psalm 16 uh, that Sunday. And I know you guys remember that teaching. You're like, yeah, I didn't know what you were going to do. Like he already covered that one. So why would we get into it again? So we're going to skip that one. We've covered Psalm 16. There's 150 chapters in this book, so we got to make sure we're being judicious with our time. So I'm jumping to chapter 17 uh, this week. All right, we're going to read the whole psalm together, so follow along either in your Bibles or on the screen. So prayer, David. This is a a lament psalm. You're going to pick up on that tone as we go through it. It's not an up psalm, a happy psalm. Uh, This is a a psalm where David is under extreme pressure, as is suggested by the title of my message today. And I think it's a prayer that we can be praying. So I want you to see how David progresses through this prayer. A prayer of David is a superscription. It says in verse 1, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard, verse 4, to the works of man... By the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. 
My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously, verse 7, show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They, verse 10, close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, verse 15, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Lord, we come to you today and we pray that you would bring us more and more to the place of being able to pray, verse 15, that we will be satisfied beholding your face, that we will be satisfied when we are seeing and being remade more and more into your likeness. That's what we want, Lord, more than anything, even escape from the perils of life. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd bring us to this place and understanding and that you'd use this psalm, Lord, to encourage us in that direction. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, to, uh, to understand this psalm, I think it might be helpful to have an image uh, in your mind, a picture in your mind of someone who is running out of a burning home with all of their most precious possessions and relationships intact. Uh, They, of course, would smell like smoke. They've suffered great catastrophe in their lives, but they've survived with the most important elements of life intact. That's, in a sense, what this psalm depicts. You have David, the prayer of this song, running out of his own burning building of life, proverbially, with all of the most important elements of life intact. But what I want to say is that to really understand this song, I think you'd have to take that metaphor, that picture, that illustration a step further. You'd have to envision David coming out of that burning building, not only intact, but as, listen to me now, a better version of himself and with a better version of life than before the fire. Sure, the flames have cost him dearly. David mixes no bones about that. He's suffered greatly as a result of his enemy. But through God's redemptive love, David is enriched greatly. And that's how he closes this song. Now, this concept should not be completely foreign to us, even in our news these days, in our news feed this last week. We've seen the damage that fire can do. But using that illustration of the burning house, 
It's not hard to even imagine that being a catalyst for incredible good in a person's life. Imagine, for instance, that inside a home dwells a fractured family. People in that family drifting from one another, considering grave sin that would harm generations if committed. And imagine a fire to that home, a catastrophe in life, being the ingredient required to snap them back into devotion to God, commitment to one another. It's not hard for us to imagine how a burning fire can be used to produce something beautiful in a person's life. Uh, It can interrupt a terrible choice. It can be a sudden stop to a wayward path. The fire could produce, and that's what happens in this song. Uh, We know this as Christians from places like Romans 8, verse 28, where Paul said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say all things that happen to those who love God are good. That's not what he said. What he said is that when you're walking with God, when you love God, when you've been adopted by him through the gospel, when you're one of his and you're trying to walk in the light and enjoy him, he'll take the all things, the by themselves bitter ingredients of life, and he will use them, work them together to produce a bottom line of good in our lives. Something wonderful can come out of the all things ingredients, the bitter and unsavory things on their own because of God's incredible hand upon our lives. So the whole psalm that we're looking at here, it smells like the smoke produced by the refining fire of the furnace, but it ends with a man who came out of that fire unharmed, a man who came out of that fire unmoved, a man who came out of that fire improved for God's glory. So what I want to do today is I just want to think about this psalm, and I want to look for three things. I want to first try to unearth the pressure that David was under. What was David facing? How did David describe it? He's a very poetic man. He's very musical. Uh, He's got a way with words. So we're going to look at how he described the difficulty that he was going through. And the question is designed to help us ask ourselves, can we relate to his trouble or his pressure in any way? And I think we can. That's why it's in the Bible. Uh, Second, what I want us to do is think about what David asked for. What what did he want God to do? What What is this man of God who's in this trial, in this difficulty, in this pressure, what does he ask God for initially? And then lastly, I want us to consider the solution that God gave to this man. Uh, especially uh, what he meant when he concluded at the end of the song, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What did David mean? Because that was the answer that God gave him. What did David mean when he made that confession? Okay, so those are the three things we'll think about today. So first, number one, what was the pressure uh, that David was 
under? What kind of pressure was David experiencing? Now, we don't know the historical background to this song, but if you've ever studied the life of David, you know that he went through chaos quite often. I mean, how can we go through a study of the Psalms without referring quite often to the pressures that David experienced? Most of his Psalms came out of pain, hardship, agony, difficulty. Uh, Most of his songs did not come out of the, the chipper, good, beautiful, wonderful times of his life. Some did, but most came out of the hardships of life. And, and David experienced many of those. When, when he was a young man uh, in his father's house, it seems that he was forgotten by his father, Jesse. It, it, his dad seemed to think that his great destiny was to care for sheep out in the wilderness, not be a future leader of God's people. But that was God's vision for David. Uh, when David was coronated, or excuse me, anointed as the future king of Israel, David then entered into a phase of persecution at the hands of his father-in-law, Saul. He married the king's daughter, but that king, through jealousy after David slayed Goliath, began to conspire to take David's life over and over again. And so he spent over 10 years in the wilderness, on the run, fleeing for his life. When he finally did ascend to the throne, it wasn't all rainbows and cupcakes during his reign as the leader of Israel. Eventually, his own children grew up, and one of his sons, a man named Absalom, stood by the gate of the city and stole the hearts of the people of Israel as they came in and out of the city of David, convincing them that he would be a better leader for the people of God than David himself, forcing David at one point to choose between fighting against his son and fleeing back into that very same wilderness for his life. And he chose the latter. I will go into the wilderness rather than fight for myself against my own flesh and blood. What I'm trying to say is that David was not a man experienced with first world problems. He was experienced with real life and death situations. He could not put a fake positive spin on the lethal dose that his enemy was trying to administer. Uh, The way that he describes it in the psalm is beautiful. First of all, in verse four, if you look there in your Bible, he began listing his enemy's work with a title. He said, with regard to the works of man. I almost imagine David starting a brand new Google Doc, and at the top of it, he just puts a title, the works of man. Here's a list of the crazy things that people have done to me. Here's the stuff that I'm enduring. Here's the situation that I am in. And whoever his foe was, we know that one thing was certain. Verse four and verse nine tells us that they were violent towards David. Now, if you think about what violence is, it, of course, can be loud and physical, overt and obvious, but it can also be quiet and psychological. Violence is concerned with the result of destruction. Whatever means are required to get there, the violent will do that destructive work. And David went on to say that their brand of violence was, verse 9 and 10, deadly, without pity, and with great arrogance. Whoever came up against him was deadly, without pity, and with great arrogance. And when In verse 11, he said that his enemies set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's more than likely using words that are illustrative of a bull pawing at the ground with its eyes down right before it charges against its enemy. 
David felt that way, like a doomed matador in the ring with a champion. He saw his enemy pawing the ground, ready to gouge, determined to harm. Not only that, though, in verse 12, David said that his enemy was as cocky and self-assured as a lion eager to tear or a young lion lurking in ambush. In other words, their arrogance was so off the charts, partly because everything in the lives of his enemies was apparently going really well. They had a lot to be arrogant about. David said in verse 14 that they were men of the world whose portion is in this life. They were doing really well in the world today. Even their families, verse 14, prospered. And they were satisfied with children And they were satisfied with, David says, generational abundance. They had a ton left over to leave to their children and their children's children after they were gone. Now, my question is, is there any part of you that can relate to David's experience? Have you felt any foes in life that have come in similar packaging? Self-assured, prosperous, violent, destructive. Uh, This uh, last uh, vacation that I was on, there was one uh, morning, usually each morning I'd head out for a run or a hike, as I told you last week. And uh, this one particular morning, uh, I was out on a trail out in the woods, and the home that we were staying at happened to be nearby a portion of the Tahoe Rim Trail that goes around the entire Uh, crest of all the mountains around Lake Tahoe. I think it's about 160 miles to get around the whole thing. That's not what I was walking during my morning Devo time. It was about a four-mile stretch that I was doing. And uh, one morning I was out there, and you know, you'd see two or three people, you know, on a four-mile stretch at that time of day. And I saw this gentleman coming uh, my direction. He was a little older than me, and he had a a huge pack on his shoulders. I probably guess maybe about 70 pounds worth of gear uh, that he was carrying. And he's trudging along. And I could tell, you know, when you get that vibe that somebody wants to talk to you uh, as they're approaching, I could tell that this guy really wanted to chat for a second. So uh, I stopped and said hello, and, and, uh, and he started chatting with me, and uh, he said, you know, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm just doing a little four-mile loop. I'm staying at a house uh, nearby, just kind of getting my day started. And I said, where, where are you going? He said, well, I'm, I'm from Alaska, and I, I came down here. I'm doing the whole 160 miles all the way around the lake. It's going to take me 14 days to do this whole thing, you know. And it's been a dream come true. I'm having so much fun. And I was like, oh, great. And so I asked him, I said, how far have you already gone? How long into it are you? And he said, 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I I partly wanted to tell him like, bro, if if you need to talk to people 10 minutes in, you're going to have a tough time, 14 days all by yourself. You should have bought some friends. But I, I just thought, I thought that, is, that can so often be the way life is. We head out on the journey, we're, we're optimistic, we're, we're excited, we're, we're looking forward to something, and then life just over time can just pummel you down. That's what David was experiencing. You know, he'd gone through all the things of, 
I'm, I'm God's anointed man. God has a plan for my life. I'm going to be the king of Israel. But he'd also gone through the disillusionment and the pain and the difficulty that that calling had brought into his life. Now, I'm sure that many of us have endured a lot in life. Some of you have endured so much at the hands of other people. You know, it's amazing how much blame God gets for the evils that people commit against one another. Now, God is sovereign, but he does not micromanage the inner workings of every human heart. In God's sovereignty, he allows a fallen and broken humanity to make their choices. And many of those choices lead to the harm of others. Many of us have been abused. Many of us have been neglected. Many of us have been betrayed by another of our species. But I'm also sure that many of us have endured not just foes from outside of us, but from the foe within us. In fact, when David said that his foe was like a lion eager to tear, wanting to do great violence, to me it sounds like a great description of the sinful flesh that dwells within us. We're a mixture of longings, if we're honest. Some are contrary to God and some are in line with God. We're a battlefield between flesh and spirit. We have been the abuser, the neglecter, the betrayer. We've not always done what we should do or said what we should say. We aren't always playing the good role in the cosmic battle between good and evil. We've set our affections on this world in an attempt to make our portion this life. And for that, we need to drink deeply of God's daily dose of mercy and grace to help us overcome our own tendencies within to destroy with our words and our actions. But this was the pressure that the psalmist was under. And I think all of us feel these pressures today. We're, we're constantly called to go round after round with opponents in this life. Uh, my, my kids were recently showing me a, uh, I don't know if it's a meme or what the right terminology is, but I'm old. And, uh, but they were showing me this, this thing that was trending on TikTok. Apparently the kids had uh, taken this clip of uh, a young man who's going to be performing in the new Finding Nemo musical that's coming out sometime soon. I don't know when. Find it in uh, New York, I guess. But, uh, and it's a kid singing a line from this musical. He's got a pole in his hand, and at the top of the pole is a Nemo fish. And uh, he's singing the line, Where's my dad? I'm all alone I'm too small to be on my own. It's a very tender little line. But what the kids had done with that little image is they'd superimposed it, all these adulting type experiences, and they have that kid singing it on loop. So it'd be like uh, someone would write like, me when I'm trying to get my oil changed. You know, <laughs> where's my dad? I'm all alone. I'm too small to be on my own, you know? Or I'm trying to register to vote. Where's my dad? I'm all alone. <laughs> and uh, so we were laughing at all these different versions of that meme or whatever you want to call it. But it just made me think, yeah, that's, that's life. We're, we're continually experiencing the new and the challenging. Financial pressures breathing down our necks. Just when you catch a break, another setback occurs. 
physical pressures get all of us at some point, whether young or old, they all get us at some point. Relational pressures. I mean, we live in a fractured world. It feels like there's no handbook for solving so many of the relational problems that abound in our lives. Everywhere we turn, extreme pressures abound. All right, so that was David's situation. I think that we can relate to it to a degree. So the second thing I said I I wanted to think about from this psalm is in light of these pressures, what did David want? What was his big request that he brought to God? What did he want to see God do? Well, the bottom line is that David wanted God to rescue him. He wanted God to defend him. Uh, He starts out the whole song praying for just that. He says in verse one, God, hear a just cause, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer. Uh, In verse two, he said that he wants God to vindicate him. But more than just vindication, he says, God, I want you to see me. I want you to behold me. Ever kind of prayed that way to God? Like, God, do you see me? You know, I want you to see me. Can you, can you see what I'm going through? Uh, in verse six, seven, and eight, he asked God to incline his ear to him, to keep him and to protect him. And in verse 13, he wanted God to get up. He says, God, arise. Have you ever prayed that way? Like, God, I, I just need you to do something. I need, you, I need you to move. I need you to arise to, he says, confront and subdue the oppressor. And then in verse 13, he also prayed for deliverance. I want deliverance. Uh, And isn't this precisely what we want, at first at least, when under extreme pressure from hostile people or the hostilities of life itself? When the fire begins to burn, isn't our main desire to escape? Don't we just basically... When we come to God reflexively say, God, get me out of this. That's that's bottom line. What I want is I want you to get me out of this. It's a a non-poetic, non-psalmic way to say what David was saying. All throughout this psalm, God, I need you to get me out of this thing. Uh, Recently, my family, we sat down and we watched uh, a movie that is apparently based on a book that is, came out in the 70s or something called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. We can't, we can't only watch Interstellar in our house. We have to watch movies like this. It's about a sixth grade girl who is coming of age. And what she wants more than anything as she's like interacting with all these other mean girls is she wants basically to go through puberty. That's what she wants. And so she's like, that's what I want. And she has these little conversations with God all throughout the movie. And that's what she's asking for. She's just drawing a straight line between this is what I'm going through. This is what I want. And that is what I'm going to ask God to do. And I think what I'm trying to say here with this little quirky illustration that you guys are looking at me sideways about is I'm trying to say that David at first is praying Margaret level prayers. Okay, it's just, I don't like it. I want it to change. So I'm going to pray that way. Okay, that's not how David's prayer ends. He advances in the real prayer, but at first he prays like so many of us pray. It's just a I don't like it, here's what I'm in, I want out of it, and that's what I am asking God to do. You see, as Christians, we have to remember in the difficulties of life, the gospel. The cross of Jesus, you guys, it obliterated the natural order of things. 
Through the gruesome death of Jesus came the glorious life and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I think you could say that Jesus is the only one who can really truly pray Psalm 17 without any error whatsoever. He's the one that is pure, righteous, holy, no uh, sin, with true enemies that came against him. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book about how to read the Psalms, and that's one of the cases that he builds, is that you have to read the Psalms through the lens of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Psalms. Jesus praised the Psalms. So when we pray these prayers, we're praying them through our position in Jesus. The event that at first appeared, in other words, to be God's great defeat... The cross was God's great victory. And Jesus invites us into a life that is similar to that model. To take up our own crosses, to die daily, and to follow him. Jesus' followers are invited into a lifetime of living in the Spirit's resurrection power. But resurrection is preceded by death. It's one thing to say, like, oh, I want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus. Do you want to experience the death? that precedes the resurrection power, though. What I'm trying to draw out from the biblical story is that it's often through death or pressure or pain or heartache that God's resurrection power comes. That's the story of this psalm, and it's often our story as well. The finances downturn, but dependence on God rises. The relationship stagnates, so your walk with God is rekindled. Your kids rebel against you or against God, so you turn to God in a way that you haven't turned to him for some time. School becomes challenging you for, for you for the very first time, or you don't get into the college that you want to, and you begin to be desperate for God in a way that you weren't when you were on autopilot focused on other things. Dating proves to be a fruitless endeavor in your life, and it feels that no one is out there. And so pretty soon, God begins to come into clearer vision in your life. Your body doesn't cooperate with your desires and what you would like to see happen through life. But pretty soon, God and his heart for you becomes more real. That's the reality. At first, our request is, get us out of this, God, but God is doing something deeper behind the scenes. But that was David's request at first. God, get us out of this. Okay, in light of David's request, what was the solution? What did God do? How did God answer his cry? Well, the first thing is that David became conscious of God's love. Uh, notice in verse 7, he asked God to wondrously show his steadfast love to him. Uh, this is David's way of saying that he wanted God to move, not because David was righteous. He's not saying to God, God, you owe me. I've been so good. I've kept all the rules, so you owe me. This is David's way of saying, despite myself, I'm leaning on your covenantal love. I'm leaning on your nature. The very God who made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who made a covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses and Israel. That covenantal God is who David appeals to right here. He wants God to move because of God's love. In other words, in the middle of the fire, David sees God's love, an unalterable love because it was attached to God's promise. Again, on a trail while I was up at the lake, 
uh, I was one morning just going for a run and I saw this cute little sight. It was a small little family of four. Uh, the children, a boy and a girl, were probably four and three years old, something like that. And the mom and the dad were riding the two bicycles. And uh, the mom had the little boy on the back of her bicycle, and it was hilarious when they rode by because the little boy was barely attached to the bicycle at all. I mean, he's just like hanging off the back. I feel like he was knuckle dragging, you know, he's just having a great time on the back of this bicycle. And then the dad came by, and the little girl It was almost like it took me a second to realize that there was another person on this bicycle because she was so deeply embedding herself into his back. It's like she was holding on for dear life. She was definitely not having a good time. It was not a scenic ride at all. And as she drove by, or as they rode by, I thought to myself, that's that's the kind of attachment I want to have to my father. You know, just a a, a love for him and a connection to his love for me that is protective. And that's what David was doing. He says to God, God, I'm in the midst of all of this, but I'm focusing afresh on your love. And I'm going to hold on to that covenant that you have made with me. But David also became aware, not just of God's love, but of God's merciful protection in his life. He was going through painful things, but he still believed that God was taking care of him. He said in verse 8 that he expected that God would keep uh, care of him as the apple of his eye. Now, the apple of your eye is likely the pupil of your eye. And you know how your whole body conspires to take care of that precious organ. You know, David was a human. He knew that when someone threw something at him unexpectedly or dirt was thrown up in the air unexpectedly or he was falling down, he knew that his whole body would protect his eye. And he began thinking, I'm like that for God. The eyebrows there to protect the eye, the the eyelashes there to protect the eye, the whole structure of that apple of an eye, the body protecting it, doing everything to preserve that vision. So my father in heaven, my God is protecting me in that very same way. He'll do whatever it takes to see me through. And so David is trusting that God, despite all he was enduring at the moment, was busy watching over his child. Now, there's another figure of speech that David saw that helped him connect to God's mercy. He said in verse 8 that God would hide him in the shadow of his wings. Now, just as a mother bird hides its young under its wings, so God would and was covering his man. And David was sure now at this point of the future that God provided for him. He was going to be mercifully protected by God. He would not panic but he would wait because God was on the move. But if you stop right there, you might come to the conclusion that David's first desire that God would get him out of this is what David still expected that God would do. But you have to read the last line of the psalm. Finally, in the last line of the psalm, David concluded, as for me, as opposed to my enemies, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now, uh, probably many of us in this room, when we've read that line, if we've read it before or heard it before, we think that what David is talking about is life after death. 
Uh, We think that what he's saying is, someday I'm going to die, but when I awake, I'm gonna see God, I'm gonna see his likeness, and that's when I will experience uh, satisfaction in, in the ever after with God. And that, of course, is a biblical truth, but it's probably not at all what David is thinking when he pins that line. What David meant was that he was in, through all of this adversity, the dark night of prayer, and he expected to find satisfaction as he drew near to God. In other words, David, who at first thought, what I need more than anything is to get out of this, begins to say, what I need more than anything is to experience God in this. The man who began the psalm wanting vengeance now believed that he would find true rest in and with his Lord. Even if God decided not to protect him further and instead permitted all this chaos for his refinement, David was convinced that whatever God chose would culminate in the revelation of God's glory, that he'd become like God, experience God's likeness as a result of this difficulty. And with that, when David prayed that way, he was free. He was no longer bound to transitory blessings, but was satisfied with a transformational interaction with God. He was no longer placated by surface level goodnesses. He was no longer praying Margaret prayers, but was resolved to plunge into the deep goodness of God. He was no longer enraptured with stuff, but with sanctification. He wanted God, and that brought satisfaction to his soul. Charles Spurgeon, in his comments on this psalm, said it this way. To behold God's face and to be changed by that vision into his image, so as to partake in his righteousness, this is my noble ambition and In the prospect of this, the the possibility of being changed as I interact with him, he said, I cheerfully waive all my present enjoyments. That's a wild prayer. It's a prayer that says, if I gotta go through the extreme pressure in order to know, experience, and become like God, keep the extreme pressure. I don't want it to go away. I don't want it to release. I don't want to get out of it if it means that I can't become like my Lord. That's what David was praying here in this psalm. And I think, I I know, I'm not the only person in this room who's become close to God through or because of the fire. We might smell like smoke, but fuller of life and faith and hope and love than ever before. We know God. In fact, this whole song, uh, this this whole psalm, as I've studied it, it it reminded me of a a classic jam from the 90s, that song, Refiner's Fire. I don't know if you guys remember that song, if if you were around at that time. It was the jam of 90s youth groups nationwide. And uh, it's it's based on a little verse out of the book of Malachi about God being a refiner who refines his people with a fire. And the chorus said, refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord, 
I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. And in that refining fire of God's presence, uh, worshipers would sing that that's what we want more than anything. We want, we want God to purify our hearts. Just as gold and silver would be purified, we want to be cleansed from sin deep within. And that's what had happened in this psalm. David had prayed that way. He is a man who wants to come out of the furnace of life, set apart for his Lord, holy and ready to do his will. I was reading uh, recently a book by uh, Pastor Josh White called Stumbling Toward Eternity. Uh, Josh is a great pastor. He pastors Door of Hope Church in Portland, Oregon. So he's a little eccentric because you kind of have to be to pastor a church there. Uh, but, uh, and Lord willing, he's actually going to come and speak to our men this February and talk to us at our men's conference. But he has this beautiful quote about this battle within He said, I am innocence lost, and yet I am still full of childlike wonder. I am the aging man who wastes life to avoid death's coming, and yet I am also wisdom growing. I am both monster and new creation, hidden and exposed, dangerous and gentle. My existence is always a potential gift or threat to others. I am both of the earth and the air. I am heaven and hell. I am a mixture. So I must die the good death daily. And I think what David recognized is that the extreme pressure he was going through were training wheels to help him die the good death every day so that he could experience God's transformational power. So I pray that we would be able to pray like David that we would be able to say, even though pressures abound and even though evil flourishes, as for me, I will gaze upon God, your glorious and perfect face, because you have made me able to stand in your presence through the gospel. And when I awake, when I get up from this night of death or the chaos I'm passing through, it will be your presence to me and your presence in me that fills me with unsurpassed joy. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.